I am so grateful for worship. I am so grateful that the way that our Father designed the church and the instructions that he gave all the way at the very beginning of the story when King David himself was one who liked to pull out the harp and play and, and he gave musicians to help his people sing his praises that the Apostle Paul would say, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Because I don't know about you, there's a lot of Sundays where I come in and my heart is hard and cold and it needs to be warmed up by the fires of praise. And that usually happens because we have such wonderful people who are a part. I mean, you know, we had people stand at the beginning who are volunteers. You had people standing in front of you who are volunteers, right? Dustin praying and, and Tim, our newest mem- one of our newest members here at Grace Church who, you know, we figured since the king was coronated yesterday, we'd fly a Brit all the way over and, <laughs> you know, have us lead in worship this morning. And, and uh, Tim's been doing this for a lot of years uh, from where he came from his homeland. It's so good to have him up here leading us. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, you didn't bring a Bible with you and there's a pew Bible, pew. <laughs> We don't have pews, do we? We have chairs. There's <laughs> chairs that have Bibles in them. If you want to find Romans 8, you can turn to page 1003 on that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. We're in a series about that, that there's no condemnation, none for those who are in Messiah Jesus. And that is good news, isn't it? That's good news. Because who wants to live under the dark cloud of condemnation? For from such a dark cloud fall the rains of disapproval and accusation, damnation, judgment, and reproach. And it is in such storms that we are drenched in feelings of guilt Doubt, fear, and uncertainty. But in Messiah Jesus, in the good news that He brings, such dark clouds and storms are meant to be blown away like the spring winds of Salida to reveal the clear skies of approval, affirmation, Joy, pardon, and honor. And it is under such blue vistas that we lift up our faces and minds and souls to bask in the warm sunshine of forgiveness and confidence, contentment and certainty, safety and acceptance and assurance. Huh. Assurance. It is both a statement made and a reality felt. It is a declaration, a pledge, a vow, a commitment made from one person to another that is intended to give one confidence. Let me assure you. And on the receiving end of such a declaration, it is this sense that rises up in the heart of the hearer of certainty and certitude. It's, it's something that goes beyond mere intellect and understanding and creates feelings and emotions 
a settled state of hope and calm and contentment because you do, in fact, feel assured. But something like that, the assurance of no condemnation, if it is to have any truly transformative value, if it is to have any lasting impact and effect, it must be anchored to something deep and substantial. The means by which such assurances are delivered is important. The strength of such statements and promises and declarations, these assurances are directly proportional to the person who is making them and the strength that they have to deliver on what they're saying, on their assurances. And this is precisely what Paul unveils in Romans 8, verses 12 to 17, by way of supporting his assurance in verse 1. He wants us to have assurance in Messiah Jesus that there is now therefore no condemnation. So what are the means by which such assurances are delivered? Well, none other than the adoption into the family of God Himself. And who makes such assurances? Our Divine Father. And what is the power that delivers such assurance to our hearts? None other than the Spirit of God Himself. So then, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right off the bat, Paul tips his hand a bit for the means of our assurance with this warm address. So then, brothers, sisters, so then, family. And this warm word from Paul addressed to family is a follow-up to what he had just argued in verses 5 to 11 about the two great powers of salvation history, the flesh and the spirit. Paul the apostle has forcefully and eloquently argued that in the spirit of God, we have life in the full. We have life and peace. We belong to Jesus with bodies dead to sin, bodies filled with life so powerful that we will transcend death and live forever because of resurrection power. And now our brother Paul, our brother sets quill to parchment to show us that such far-reaching realities and burgeoning benefits produce consequences for the day-to-day life of a believer growing one step closer to Jesus. These big theology, you know, theology is immensely practical. And if it's not, you're not doing theology. Because all theology is meant to be applied to the day-to-day life of believers Such breathtaking doctrines as Paul is giving us here are meant to have everyday effects. And Paul calls these effects obligations. In other words, such realities require certain responsibilities and reactions. 
with everything else that they do to transform us, they also transform us into people under a moral obligation for a certain kind of response to those realities. A debt, if you will. No condemnation? Yes. A life of gratitude and obligation? Yes. You know, my guess here in verse 12 is that what Paul was about to write in this moment is that we have an obligation to the Spirit and the God who sent him. But for his own reasons, he first elaborates on who we are not obligated to. If God has condemned sin in the flesh through the death of his son, chapter 8, verse 3, if believers do not live according to the flesh, verse 4, if we do not have the mindset of the flesh, verses 5 to 7, and if in some sense we are not in the flesh, verse 9, then we owe the flesh nothing. And there is so much confusion in our day at exactly this point. We seem, even as Christians, I fear, to believe that whatever we want is whatever we should pursue. There are many cases in which a human's desires, and they are the desires of the flesh, are raised to the level of obligation. If the flesh wants it, then the flesh must have it. If this is what I want, this is what must be supplied. I am under what amounts to a moral obligation to satisfy this desire. Do we not see that? Friend, this is a lie from Satan himself. You are not obligated to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to to die. Didn't you just proclaim this, this truth in reality? I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the flesh that promised joy in life had led you where? To the grave. A spiritual death bound up in an eternal grave and torment, separated forever from the abundant life that you can find only in a loving father and spiritual brothers and sisters to be separated from all of that as a penalty for your sin, for following and living under obligation to the flesh. Paul could not be more clear that those who live by the norms of the flesh are treading on the brink of a precipice. But, <laughs> there's that little three-lettered conjunction again, that little adversative that just keeps cropping up for us. But, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you won't be on the precipice that leads to death. Instead, you will what? Live. Live. The flesh has done no favors and we owe it none in return, says N.T., right? You see, we still live in these mortal, 
not yet glorified bodies. And so there is in them, in us, an inherent weakness to the temptations and the desires of the flesh. Now, it's not that the body is fundamentally evil. We're not Gnostics. We're not trying to get rid of the body. We are going to have physical resurrection bodies. You're still going to have that body you got right now. I mean, it's going to be glorified, but it's going to still be you. That's as good as you're going to look. It's not that this body is fundamentally evil, but it is stained by evil and weakened by the flesh. And so there are going to be wrong desires and longings that spring up. It's like they spring up within us, seemingly out of nowhere. There will be all kinds of things that our bodies will tell us that they want, things that come unbidden into our minds. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Those times when out of the blue, an evil thought hits you, like in the midst of like something really good that's going on, like reading your Bible, listening to a sermon, Singing with your brothers and sisters and out of nowhere? And you say, where in the world did that come from? From lust to gossip, anger to envy. And right there in that moment, the fight is on. The fight is on. Will you respond with passive resignation? Oh, here it is again, you know, that temptation, that... That desire, I'm just so tired of fighting it. I might as well just give in. Is that what you do? Or do you fight? And listen, I I get it. These desires can be so strong, can't they? Can we just admit that? They can be so strong and not let go. Have you ever had a thought that came in and it was like a bulldog on your neck and just didn't want to let go of you? It can feel like you don't have a chance, which is exactly why you have to put these. That's why Paul says you have to put them to death. A strong and deadly desire requires a deadly, serious retaliation. It's bound to be hard and sometimes even painful, but it must be done. In the famous words of John Owen, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin won't give up. It wants your ruin. It wants your death. Your flesh is not your friend. It would have you and drag you down to death. Will you go quietly into that dark night to which you should say, hell no. And that's not cussing. Right? That's reality. Hell no. Because that's what's happening. Hell is coming against you. And will you fight with everything that you have? I love how one commentator puts it. Don't haggle or negotiate with the flesh. Instead, put the false fleshly debt collector to death like you would a cobra you found in a child's bedroom. We lived in Orlando for a few years when we were helping to start a new church. And uh, one day I was walking down the hallway, 
past my, um, my two boys at the time. I was going past their bedroom, and they were, they were dozing in their bunk beds. And as I walked by the, the doorway, I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a scorpion crawling across the floor. And in a real kind of discovery channel kind of way, I was like, cool, a scorpion. And then I was like, wait, a scorpion (laughs) in my house. Now, what do you think my response was to the presence of such a danger in my son's bedroom? Do you think I allowed it to just kind of go where it would like? Do, do you think I just kind of like shoot it? Like, like shoo, shoo, little scorpion. Maybe you want to come out here and not be in my boy's bedroom. You know, negotiating with the little scorpion. No, I attacked it with ferocity, you know, with a tissue box. That's right, I'm an idiot. I attacked it with a tissue box. I got down on the scorpion, had it on the tissue box, and you know what happened? Its tail went thunk, 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 thunk into the tissue box. Now I'm thinking, well, what do I do now? So I found a shoe with a wooden heel, and I went to town on that scorpion. I'm telling you. I cracked its exoskeleton, and listen, I'm telling you, that took a while. These things are tough. but I squished and crushed the life from it. Why? Because if I didn't do that, it would be seeking to kill me, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You know what I love about being a Christian? I love that I have a God, a Father, who never gives me a command without giving me the means to fulfill that command. Never. He never does that. He says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And he says, if by the Spirit, he gives me the Spirit, I have a part to play. I have to fight. But at the same time, this is not something to be done on my own steam and by my own energy under my own power. I do it by the Spirit. I call for and ask for the Spirit's help. Brother Paul counsels elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, no test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He will always be there to help you come through it. You got to write down 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's a promise. He will always be there to help you come through it. Always. So just ask him. How many times do we fall prey to the flesh because we don't stop and ask God for help? We just try to fight on our own. Get that thought out of here. You know, pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants. What are you seeing? Pink elephants. And said, stop and say, Father, I, I need your help right now. Here it is again. Lust. It's in my head. There's a thought. And I need your help, and it's not letting go. And fight in that moment. 
The beauty of this passage is that there is more, there's more here for us, if you can believe it, than merely the promise of the Spirit, of the power of God to help you live under no obligation to the flesh and therefore under no condemnation. There is another work of the Spirit, an absolutely stunning work of the Spirit to remake your status and standing and to guarantee your everlasting security. Four. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. (laughs) No, 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 no. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Brother Paul, oh, man, you guys, it is so amazing. He just takes us deeper and deeper and deeper into the work of the Spirit on our behalf. Because you see, all those who are led by God's Spirit, it's not merely that we are disciples of Jesus. It's not merely that we are citizens of God's kingdom. It's not merely that we are subjects of the messianic king long awaited and come. It's not merely that we are part of God's people. It's not just that we have been naturalized into his nation, nor that the court and judge we stood before was a proceeding merely of our justification and being declared right before God as if all of that weren't mind-blowing enough. Above all of that, or maybe it is that it is the foundation of all of that, the most fundamental aspect of all of God's work is that the law court that we were standing in is an adoption court. The presence of the Spirit in us is the guarantee of sonship conferred upon us. We receive a spirit not, we did not receive a spirit of slavery to the flesh by which we should continually fall back into some state, listen to this, of fear or doubt or guilt or uncertainty or condemnation. No, Paul says, the spirit we have received is the spirit of adoption. For the better part of my childhood, Up until about age 14, I lived with my younger brother and my single mom. I don't recall too much in my very young years despising the absence of a father in my life, which I think is due in large part to the excellence of my mom. (laughs) She's an amazing wife. You know, I look back now at 54 having had to parent four kids with a wife, I'm amazed at what my mom did on her own. But as I got a little bit older in those days, the absence of a father in my life became more and more painful because you see, all, all of my friends had dads, fathers who took them fishing and hunting and and did all the sports, you know, just showed them how to be a man. My mom did the best that she could. She had me spend time with an uncle, my grandfather, but it, you know, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as having a father in my life. I think it was around 
12 or 13, that my mom started dating Dennis Molesky. They met at a community center class to take tennis. He started taking Chris and I fishing and hunting. He would throw the football around with us. He, he taught us how to play hot box in the front yard. Anybody play hot box when you were a kid? Have a catch with a baseball mitt and a ball. Took us on walks through the woods. He showed my brother and I what it was like to be a man. I remember when he proposed. <laughs> we were playing hot box out in the front yard and went into the house and next thing I know, mom is calling us into the house and she said, we need you to sit down. We're getting married. And I cried like a baby. Sometime later, we stood in a courtroom. I'll never forget it. Anybody been in a courtroom? You know, a couple tables, big bench. Everyone's like, oh, I don't really want to say I was in a courtroom. <laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> big bench with a judge sitting up there and me at one of the tables with my mom and this man who was about to be declared my father. Memories are imperfect, but I think the judge said something like, do you understand what is happening, Matthew? Do you want to be adopted? Do you want this man to be your dad? And I thought in my head, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? Do I want him to be my father? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Make me no longer Matthew Cephas, but Matthew Molesky. Give me a name and a family and a line and a heritage. I want to be a part of his family. I want to be his son. You see, family, this is the wonder of adoption. It was such a perfect metaphor that existed in the time of Jesus and Paul because adoption bestowed a status on the son to which he had no right and which he received solely because of the father's decision. You see, adoption is an act of grace. Adoption conferred all the legal rights and privileges of the family upon the son. Adoption gave a kind of status that sometimes even eclipsed that of biological children in the Roman societal system. See, that was so remarkable about what my dad did. He didn't have to make me his son. He didn't have to choose me. He didn't have to take on this life of two grown kids. He could have gone on living his life without my brother and I, but he didn't. He chose us and he gave us his name and all the rights and privileges of being a Polak, such as they are. He provided safety and welcome, security and love. He ushered us into another family, Dorothy, Rick, Steve, Nadine. Another history, another line. He took responsibility for us, a responsibility that he bears to this day with my brother and I and all of our children, now his grandchildren. In one moment of decision, he created a legacy. And it all started with this wondrous, this wondrous act of self-sacrifice and love. 
adoption. And you see, friends, God did the same thing. God decided. It's so amazing, really. He, he decided that the best way and the fullest way to fix our status of condemnation was through the spirit of adoption, to change our status from out to in in the most stunning way possible. He has bestowed upon all of us, men and women, boys and girls, all of us in this metaphor, son status, something to which we have no right, but which we receive solely because of his decision. Our adoption for all of us is a phenomenal act of grace. And it confers upon all of us the legal rights and privileges of the Son. That's right, Jesus. Verse 17. The Father has ushered us into His family and given us His history. He, he takes responsibility for us, a responsibility He will bear for the rest of our lives, all the way throughout eternity. Ah! in a new heavens and a new earth. And it all started, you guys, it all started with a wondrous act of self-sacrifice and love through which we are adopted through a spirit of adoption by whom, by whom we cry out, what? Say it. Abba. You know, it's been somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years since I stood as a young boy before a judge to become Dennis Molesky's son. I'm a man now. But you want to know something? You want to know the first earthly person that I call when I need advice? You want to know the first person I call when I have a question or when I want to celebrate something God has done in my life? I call my I often call him Pa. <laughs> Little Laura Ingalls Wilder there. <laughs> it's my term of endearment for him. It represents the close relationship that we have. And he is always there for me. Goodness. Man, next time he's here, I really want you to meet him. <laughs> he's always available. He still helps a boy in his 50s <laughs> that so long ago he called his own. And it is a wonder. It is a wonder to me that God would open up the way for an intimacy like that with himself, an intimacy made possible by adoption. Because, because of the work of the Spirit within his family, we too may cry out and call the God of all creation and all that is. We can call him and say to him, dearest father, dearest father, I think the most remarkable thing about this privilege of sacred speech is that it is a birthright of those who belong to him. And something I've never seen before and haven't thought directly about before. You probably have because it's abundantly obvious. <laughs> it's another thing. This is another thing that Jesus shares with us by grace. Chapter 8, verse 17. You see, this was the intimate, affectionate way that he addressed his father. 
in his hour of great need, which I think shows that it was likely the way that he spoke to him in all of his need, which is what prayer and talking to God is, right? Right? That's what prayer is. It is a declaration of our need. I can't do this on my own. I can't experience this on my own. I want to talk to you and invite you into this reality that is my life. In the hour of his greatest need, Jesus said, cried out, Dearest Father, and it is Brother Paul elsewhere who reveals, get this, oh my gosh, I just love the Bible so much. Love the connections, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons and daughters adopted, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the son who in the hour of his greatest need cried out, dearest father, sent him into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wow. Because Jesus is here. This, this statement and this intimacy just comes from out, out of me because he's here in me. I can talk like he did to his father. Hallelujah. This is so wonderful and breathtaking that Jesus says, our adopted older brother, <laughs> what a family we are in, shares with us and ushers us by his spirit into the sphere of accepting fatherly love where we may open our mouths in a place of acceptance and welcome and warmth and safety. Do not underestimate this. This sphere how does the writer of the Hebrews say it? It's because of Jesus that we're able to go into this place that was previously unacceptable to us. We, we stand before a throne of grace for help in time of need. And we say, dearest Father, how is it that we may be assured of this? Because I want to be assured of this. This all sounds... Does this all sound really good to you? Yeah. I think it sounds amazing. How, how am I assured of this? Because the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of the things from God, no, 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 no. Look at it closely. Heirs of God himself whom I am heaven but you. And there is none that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, O oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We are heirs of God and, what does it say next? Co-heirs with Messiah. <laughs> if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Our settled sense of being a part of the family of God comes from two places. The Spirit of God speaking it to us and our own emotions in our spirit receiving that confirming voice. That is how we, as a family of God, know that we belong to God's family. And please note, Paul is not addressing you individually. Rather, he is addressing us collectively. 
And I think the difference in his pronoun choice is significant. You see, too often we think individualistically, particularly in the West. We see, we see this as a one-to-one relationship with God. We talk about my personal relationship with Jesus. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say that the Spirit testifies with your spirit so that you know that you are God's child. Instead, he says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit so that we know that we are God's children. It's bigger than just you. Do this all the time. I've been reading a book this past week called Belong by Barnabas Piper, and I was intrigued by it, given the conversations that we've been having as a leadership recently, and we'll have at our members' meeting later today about the importance of connection and community. And, and so I was reflecting on this idea that, that we were created to belong. Like, that's how we were created, that marked... From the very moment of conception, we are marked with a deep longing for belonging. And here it is right here in Romans 8. Barnabas says it this way. The Bible doesn't say we are like family. It says we are family. You got to write that down. This is not a metaphor. This is a reality. It doesn't say we are like family. It says we are family. Receiving the Holy Spirit transforms us and we become new people, which means we're no longer strangers, enemies, or rivals. We are brothers and sisters in Messiah. We are children of God. Isn't this what Jesus himself taught the disciples when, that he was bringing about? That this was part of the mission. You guys, get this. This is part of the mission why he came. Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundred times more brothers and sisters and mothers and children with persecutions. See Romans 8, 17. What is, what is Jesus talking about? This. This. Hundreds. <laughs> Literally. Here, in Salida. Hundreds. This is a big part of what it means to be an heir of God himself and a co-heir with Messiah, a family. (laughs) A perfect father who loves us perfectly, the greatest older brother in the history of older brothers who shares his inheritance with us fully and a worldwide ethnically, culturally diverse multi-millions of brothers and sisters because it's not just here, right? Right? Isn't it also in Hebrews? Remember your brothers and sisters who have been jailed and suffered persecutions. Remember them in your prayers. You have brothers and sisters all over the world. (gasps) All of whom we're going to live with in a perfect place forever and ever, world without end. Wow. Now, let's be honest. The family we are adopted into can be just as dysfunctional as any biological family out there. Amen? Come on. Right? This is a place where we can be honest. We get it wrong with each other often. We sin against one another. We hurt one another. We say stupid things to each other. We break promises. We misunderstand. Sometimes we just plain don't like each other. 
right? It's true. You know, one of the most common questions that I ask when I do marital counseling, I don't ask, do you, you love each other right now? Are you in love with each other? I assume you're in love with each other. You're married. I ask, are you in like with each other right now? You like the person sitting next to you? Because sometimes, right, Susan would say, I love you. I don't like you very much right now. It's how family operates. But you know how family also operates? It operates like I have experienced at Grace Church at age 54, like I have not experienced in any other church in the entirety of my life. A place where people lay down their lives for one another and encourage each other and sacrifice for each other and affirm one another and provide for one another and welcome, accept, love, embrace, enjoy, and celebrate each other. A place where I see people trying to slowly bring about a gentle environment where the grace of the good news can flow like the Arkansas River at 9,000 CFS. I looked that up. That's a, a good number where we can experience the safety, the safety of no condemnation and no one has anything to fear, where we can expend, extend patience and lots of time for people to change because no one changes quickly, least of all us, and God is patient. A church family where there is the good news and safety and time so that anyone can grow one step closer to Jesus. And here's what I'd love for us every single Sunday This is what I would love. I prayed about this this week. That we would get into our cars, we would drive down here, get parked far away as you can so guests can get in easier. That we would begin the walk to enter those doors out there in that lobby and instead of merely encountering greeters like Suzette and Kevin or the folks serving us coffee under Susie's direction, and Joni and her team at the Welcome Center, or Willie or Denise handing you a service guide when you walk in, instead of seeing them only as old people or young people, married or singles, here's what I would pray. I pray that we would really see, really see fathers and mothers and uncles and aunts and sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews. That that's what we would see. Because this is our reality, brothers and sisters, by the spirit of adoption. In the words of Barnabas Piper, he has joined this ragtag oddball bunch, including you, right? Because every every family needs a crazy uncle. And if you don't know who the crazy uncle is, chances are you're the crazy uncle. (laughs) He has joined this ragtag oddball bunch, including you, together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, even when others in the church are not acting as a loving family, you can love them. You can serve them. You can pray for them. You can bear with them. And you can be the family of God for them even when they are not modeling love for you. Can't you? I think you can. Paul refuses to let the glories of what he describes 
I love this about Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't let it be vague or esoteric, applicable only in ivory towers. This doctrine works at ground levels, y'all. It, it functions in our everydayness and mundaneness because part of what it means to be a co-heir of the Messiah, listen, there's a connection here, is that we share in his sufferings. You don't think Jesus felt the pain of relational dysfunction? You don't think that Jesus experienced relational betrayal? You don't think that he was misunderstood by his family? You don't think he was deserted and left alone even when all he did was express love? You don't think that he got pushback when he confronted foolishness? Well, then you don't know his story. As co-heirs, we will share in his story and experience his sufferings. All of those kinds of relational sufferings. Along with the glory comes grief, and along with all of the highs of the Christian life comes lows. You see, to follow in the steps of Jesus means to fill up the sufferings of Jesus. To follow as his disciple and grow one step closer to him. Well, listen to Jesus. Anyone who intends to come, to come with me, you know, they have to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Take up your cross daily. Follow me, and I will show you how. Worship team, would you come up? This is the way, brothers and sisters. This is, this is the way to no condemnation. Now in this age and in the age to come. We suffer with him, Paul says, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's going to say in, in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This table before us is the pinnacle of the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. It causes us to remember when, when our older brother was betrayed by all of his closest friends, when he was turned over to rulers and authorities, when he was falsely accused and tried in a court where he found no justice, where he was flogged, inflayed, assaulted, and mocked, spit on, and abused. He was hung on a cross. He drank the full cup of God's wrath. He was abandoned by his father. And he died. And he gave his body and his blood for us. For us. And do you know what he did in the midst of all of that difficulty and suffering? Filled with the Spirit, with his disciples dozing, <laughs> not far off, deeply troubled and distressed. Mark's story tells us he went a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Would you take this cup of suffering? Not once, 
But then a second time, Abba, Father, please. And then a third time, Abba, Father, please. And then, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't flee. He didn't run from being, the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere that he would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He knew what he was doing. He was making it possible so that we could enter into this family and and cry the same cry, that we might be heirs of God himself, that we might be co-heirs with him, that we could cry out, Abba, Father, when we are in need, that we could be glorified with him in the greatest family reunion in the history of family reunions. Read the rest of Romans 8 in Revelation 21 and 22 to see what's coming. I've never thought about it this way before, but this is a family meal. (laughs) This is a family meal. So gather around, take the bread and the cup. Let's raise a glass to Jesus today. And let's remember how all of this, everything that you've heard this morning, how all of it came about because of Jesus. We're going to have you servers, would you come up? We're going to have this section go over to this aisle. You'll come around this table. That section, go to that wall, and you'll come around and be served here. This section, you'll go that way, and you'll come up here. That section, you'll go that way and come up here. You don't have to, you don't have to be a member of Grace Church. You just have to be a member of God's family to take this with us today. So come and get the elements, bring them back, spend some time in prayer, and then we'll take them all together. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And they sang a hymn. Stand and sing. <laughs>